Hi, and welcome to the Radius Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in finding out more information about Radius Church, please check us out on our website, radiuschurch.tv. Happy Church, we're in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we started Ephesians about 13 weeks ago. Uh, I, I start books every couple of years, and we have no idea how long it's going to take. We did Galatians a few years ago. I thought it would be a six-week series. It ended up being a 22-week series because we couldn't get to it very quickly because there's just so much there. Uh, It's kind of the way my mind is wired. It's wired a little differently. Uh, I wish I had the ability of your pastor who could really put together clear thoughts and and series the way he does. Uh, My mind's a little bit more abstract, and so my church just has to put up with me. Uh, They actually love it when he's at our church. just, just love it. Ephesians is an amazing letter. Uh, it really is a letter, not a book, that Paul wrote to a group of churches. Now, if you don't know Paul, Paul was a very unique guy in the Bible. He, Before he became this, this incredible Christian leader that we know him as today, his entire job was to hunt down Christians, torture them for information, and then execute them. This guy was brutal. Absolutely brutal. He was cold-blooded. He was heartless. He had a mission to destroy Christianity. And God needed someone to take the gospel, this incredible message of grace that's changed our life throughout the world. And the disciples were very comfortable living in Jerusalem and in Israel. And God's like, I can't get them to move outside of Israel. We've got to get this message to the world. Who am I going to find? And he saw this guy, Paul, who had a lot of passion, just using it for the wrong reasons. And he said, what would it look like if we showed this guy some grace? Changed his life completely and put him on a mission for the gospel. And that's the letter we're reading today. And Paul never forgot where he came from. Paul never, can you imagine Paul teaching in some of the churches that he had to teach in, knowing that there were family members sitting in the audience of people he had killed? Wow. Think about that. This man had to understand grace more than anybody because of the dark past that he had. And he writes this incredible letter that we're looking at uh, in our church and that you guys have been doing, and it's an incredible letter. And the whole, let me, let me sum up Ephesians in, in two very quick points. Paul points out the second law of thermodynamics, everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. Your body is in a constant motion of just falling apart. As you get older, it falls apart. It starts slouching and sagging and, and coming apart and we're breaking down and, and it, it, just, it just happens. Like every, you get a hot cup of coffee and it's wonderful, but if you leave that hot cup of coffee alone for a little while, it begins to fall apart. It cools down. It's no longer a hot cup of coffee. It's now lukewarm and cool. And that's the law of the world that we live in. Everything around us is falling apart. And Paul writes Ephesians to let us know God's ultimate plan is to pull everything back together in one person, Jesus. Everything that is falling apart, this is Ephesians 1, is going to come back together in and under Christ. And you and I have this incredible privilege to be a part of 
going ahead of everyone else and showing the world what it looks like to be pulled together in Jesus, and he calls it the church. All of Ephesians is about the church. It's about who we are in Christ. That's why these events are not just another thing that you have to attend, but this barbecue and this brunch are incredibly important. Right. Why? Because you're showing the world what it looks like to be pulled together under Jesus, a, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what God is eventually going to do. And that is our responsibility, to show the world what is to come. Yeah. Yeah. By allowing God to pull us together in a church, in a community, to show the world what it's going to look like when he sets everything right. Have you ever wondered why... In, in literature, and in movies, and in entertainment, we have all of these stories about a king that is going to return. And when the king returns, he's going to make everything right. When the Lion King, you know, when Simba returns, he's going to deal with scars. Everything is going to be made right again. Finally, there's going to be peace. Where do you think we get that story? Because if you look at the record of kings throughout history, it's abysmal. Yeah. Think about it. All throughout history, kings are tyrants, and they're dictators, and they're evil. And where do we get this idea that somehow, someday, this good king will return and make everything right when we've never seen it in history? Could it be a memory trace? Something buried in our DNA that goes all the way back to a garden where a king was in charge, and everything was right. And nothing was falling apart because the king held it all together. Yeah. Right. And it's going to happen. Kim, is it already? Yeah. Is this better? And so that's the book of Ephesians. And so the question to ask as you study Ephesians, and I'm going to get into the message in just a moment, because the first three chapters are all about God's incredible power. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. But here's the question you have to ask. Can the incomparably great power of God work in your life without you being committed and connected to a local church? You see, we all love Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. We don't like Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. See, we all want the individual power of God to make our life better and make our marriage better and give us better peace and, and, and deal with anxiety and stress in our life. But we don't want to actually have to be accountable and work it out with other believers. And unfortunately, we live in a world today where 81% of Americans, 81%, think about that, 81% of Americans believe that you can have a very good relationship with God, you can be a very good Christian without attending a local church. And the God of the Bible has no idea what you're talking about. That's not the Christian God, at least. Because I can't have a relationship with God without relating to the body. My finger cannot have a relationship to the world if it doesn't stay related to the hand. The only way my finger can relate to the world is if it stays in relation and in connection with the hand. And the only way we can truly be everything God has called us to be is to stay connected and stay related to one another, and that's what the message of Ephesians is all about. So we're going to look at one of the most powerful passages, but I need you to understand the context that the way God does this is in community. If you want to see spiritual growth, if you want to see maturity, if you want to see yourself develop as a Christian, 
How many of you would, 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 if you were honest with yourself, would look at your life where it's at right now, and you would say, I could be a better Christian than I'm being today? Well, the way it happens is in community. And so understand that context as we get into the message, because we're going to talk about change tonight. Have you ever felt stuck? Have you ever looked at your life and thought to yourself, if I could just change this, my life would be so much better? If I could just stop doing that, if I could just stop struggling with this, if I, if, if I could get my anger under control, if I could stop worrying all the time, if I wasn't always riddled with such anxiety, if I could somehow overcome this depression, if I could somehow stop this addiction with the internet or cigarettes or drugs or whatever else it is, if I could just stop doing that, my life would be so much better. But you feel stuck because year after year after year, it's the same problem. Why am I still dealing with this? It's been 10 years. It's been 13 years. It's been 18 years. Why, why, why can't I just change this area of my life? You see, that's how I felt for years, stuck. You know, for close to 23 years of my life, I lived with a very dark, deep sex addiction. Pornography, everything you could possibly imagine. Did everything you can imagine to destroy my marriage, destroy my ministry, destroy my life. And it just seemed like the harder I tried, the worse it got. So we're going to talk about change tonight. Let me, let me start by giving you a couple keys to change. First off, the secret to change is not trying harder. The secret to change, if you want to change that area of your life, it's not trying harder. In fact, the harder you try, often the worse it gets. We had a uh, NFL great just get saved in our church. He was a famous quarterback for years, played Pro Bowl on a number of different teams, and brand new Christian. He came to me a few weeks ago, and, and, I, and I basically asked him, I said, why are you here? He said, I need to get my life in order. I said, okay. He goes, but I'm an athlete, so I know how to do this. I just got to work hard, and, and I can put my life together and get back on track spiritually, and, and, I, and I just got to work hard. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Look, honestly, if you go about it that strategy, you're going to fall hard. It, it's going to get worse. Christianity doesn't work like that. It's not about the harder you try. The harder you try, the worse it gets. So let me give you the second statement I want to make as we begin. Change begins with who you are, not what you do. Change begins with who you are, not what you do. Because you don't have a behavior issue. And I know you're thinking, whoa, 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 no, no, no. It, it really is behavior. I can't stop doing this. I can't stop worrying about this. I can't stop feeling this way. It's not a behavior issue. It's an identity issue. And then here's the last thing I want to say, which is the real key to the whole process of change that we're going to look at in Ephesians in a moment. Change begins with actually knowing Christ, not with knowing about Christ. You see, it's all about the gospel. Do you have a relationship with God? You see, that's who you are. Religion is what you do. 
God does not want to be your religion. He wants to be your father. He's building a family, and he desperately wants you to be a part of that family. He never wanted to be your religion. You see, religion at its best is good advice. The gospel is good news. Those two are radically different. See, good advice is here's some rules to follow. Here's how to make your life better. If you follow these commands and follow this code and follow this behavior, everything's going to be better for you. That's religion. That's good advice. Here's a good way for you to live your life. The gospel is the exact opposite. It's good news. It's not what you do. It's what has been done. That's why it's not knowing about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. It's the mystery. One of the things you'll notice in Ephesians is Paul talks about this mystery, the mystery, the mystery. And every time he uses the word mystery, it's always about the gospel. Paul never calls the law a mystery. The law is not a mystery. Religion is not a mystery. Religion makes sense. You see, the problem with the word mystery for us We look at mystery, like I love to watch mystery movies and the entire movie, you're trying to figure out who did it, and all of a sudden at the end you figure out who did it. That's a mystery. It's something that is hidden that you've got to figure out. The Bible uses the word mystery. It's the exact opposite. It's something revealed that God reveals because you'll never figure it out. You see, grace is a mystery because it doesn't make sense. The gospel is a mystery because it doesn't make sense. You'll never figure it out. You see, I don't need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit of my life to believe that if I do good, I'll get good, and if I do bad, I'll get bad. That's religion. That makes sense to me. There's no mystery to that. Think about it. If I do good things, then I'm going to get good things back, and if I do bad things, I'm going to get bad things. I need the supernatural power of God to believe that I can receive good I don't deserve because somebody else received bad he didn't deserve. That's a mystery. See, a mystery explodes inside of you when you get it. It's the gospel. And that's how change begins. John 8, 32. Jesus said it like this. You will know the truth. You'll know truth. And the truth will set you free. It'll change you. Think about that area that you want to change, that area that you're struggling with, that area that you want to stop doing. If you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. Now, here's the problem with that phrase, we don't understand what the word truth means. We think the word truth is God's standards. It's God's commands. Truth is thou shalt not murder, and thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That's not truth. Go back to John chapter 1. It says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus. How many of you have ever heard this phrase, it's okay to preach grace, but you also have to give people truth? It's okay to preach grace, but you also need to give people truth. There's nothing further from the truth. What side of the fence does God put truth on, the side of the law or the side of grace? You see, when they say it's okay to preach grace, but you also have to give them truth, what they're saying is grace is the nice part of God. Truth is God's standards and God's expectations. Well, John 8 wouldn't make any sense. You'll know the law, and the law will set you free. They knew the law. They were Jews, and they weren't free. See, if you go back to John, what truth is, 
in context of John 1.17, it's the truth of grace. If you'll know the truth of grace, the truth of grace will set you free. If you know the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel will set you free. It's truth. And who is truth? We'll look at John 14.6. Jesus answered, I am the truth. I, so if you know truth, if you know Jesus, that's where change begins. So let's look at the most powerful passage on change in all the Bible. This is the process of change. Let me give you the steps. Paul outlines the steps in Ephesians 4 for how change takes place in our life. Let me read it. I'm going to give you the outline, and then I'm going to break it down. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him, I've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Here's the first part that you put off. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed, second, in the spirit of your mind, and that you, third, put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So if there's anything in your life that you want to change, if there's anything in your life that you want to stop doing, if there's any area of your life that you want to grow in because you don't like where you're at, because it hurts, it complicates your life, it makes your life painful, here is the outline. Three very simple steps. Number one, put off the old self. You have to put off the old man. Put off the old woman. Number two, be renewed in the mind. And number three, put on righteousness. Put on the new person, the righteous person that you are in Christ. Now, that's the three steps. Now, let me help you understand them. First, when you put off the old, because you got to put off the old person. When you came to Christ, you came to Christ, you had to put off the old person. That's what water baptism is, by the way. Water baptism is a picture of burying the old person that you used to be. This old person who was a sinner, who did horrible things, that person is now dead and gone. I am a new person in Christ. I'm putting them off. This is what I want you to remember. Never try to put on the new before you put off the old. Never try to put on the new person that you are in Christ before you put off the old person. And here's why. Christianity is not behavior modification, it's heart transformation. God is not trying to make a better version of the old you. He wants the old you to die, and he wants to make a new you in its place. And there's a massive difference. So we put off the old person. Jesus said it like this, don't put new wine into an old wineskin. Don't try to superimpose who you used to be with who I'm making you to be. And unfortunately, we live in America. We love Burger King. Have it your way. So we come to the gospel and we say, well, I like this and I like this. I don't like that. I'm not sure I'm going to do that. But I like this part of the Bible and I like this part of what Jesus says. And so I'm going to, I'm going to add these to my life and I'm going to leave out these and I'm going to keep some of the stuff that I used to be because I don't really want to let that go yet. And we superimpose all and then it doesn't work. And we can't figure out why we're not making progress, why we're not growing. We've got to get to the place where we renounce the old person. We, we say, listen, I'm putting the old person away. Luke 14, says it very strong. This is Jesus, by the way, in the red letters. He said, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything. 
Do not give up everything. Give up your values. Give up your priorities. Give up the way you spend money. Give up the way you spend your time. If you do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Where'd nice Jesus go? Where'd walk on water Jesus go? You know, we love all the stories of Jesus. We just don't necessarily like the words of Jesus, do we? That's the problem with this generation, by the way. We all love the stories of Jesus. We don't know the words of Jesus. I have people all the time say, well, Jesus, Jesus would never do that. Really? Have you looked at some of the stuff he said? He was pretty tough. See, he can say this because he did this. He gave up everything. He gave up everything for you to give you the ability to give up everything for him. So don't try to put on the new before you put off the old. Let me give you another key. Remember the old sinful nature is dead. You're putting off something that's dead. It's dead. It doesn't have control anymore. It doesn't have authority anymore. It's dead because of what Jesus has done. I love Romans 6.11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourself dead to sin, but I just sinned. Doesn't matter. Count yourself dead to sin. But I just made a mistake. Doesn't matter. Count yourself dead. Do you know what this looks like? My son loves to do this. My son, he's in a homeschool program right now. He loves to take a test, and he'll miss like five or six, seven or eight problems. It doesn't matter. He'll still give himself 100. <laughs> you didn't make 100. Did you even grade the test? Well, I thought I got it right. You see, what Paul is saying is when you fail the test, give yourself 100. When you fail the test, grade yourself 100. Count yourself dead to sin. Even though you just committed an act of sin, you're not a sinner. You're still dead to sin. It's not who you are. It's not your identity. You've got to count yourself dead to sin even when you commit an act of sin. Let me give you a, a, a theology uh, quiz. That's, that's, I love to do this with my staff. Theology shouldn't be scary. It's just the study of God. It's like biology, study of life. Theology is the study of God. Every time you hear someone teach out of the Bible, that's theology. It's the study of God. We're studying God. I asked my staff this the other day. When did you become a sinner? Think about this for a moment. When did you become a sinner? Was it when you were like two or three and you rebelled against your parents and you committed your first act of sin? When did you become a sinner? The answer is when you were born. You were born a sinner, so you sin. When did you become righteous? When you did good things? No, when you were born again as a Christian. So let me ask you a question. When you were a sinner, before you became a Christian, when you were a sinner, did you have the ability to do good things? Yeah. You could help the poor. You could give money to people. There's a lot of good things you could do when you were a sinner. Did any of those good things make you righteous? No. No matter how many good things you did, they could not make you righteous. Only the blood of Jesus can make you righteous. So let me ask this question. 
now that you're dead to sin, now that you're born again, now that you're righteous, do you have the ability to do bad things? Can those bad things make you a sinner? Good things couldn't make you righteous when you were a sinner, so how can bad things make you a sinner when you're righteous? Paul says, count yourself dead to sin. Yes, you can commit acts of sin, but they do not make you a sinner. This is critical for you to understand as we get into a little bit deeper the process of change. And then finally, remember, I'm free from the law. When you're putting off, you got to remember you're free from the law. Rules will never produce growth in your life. That's why religion will not change you. Only relationship changes you. I love the way Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians 3. The old way. The old way. And the old way did not work, by the way. The old way of trying to be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. The old way of trying to get God to love you and God to accept you and God to bless you by being a really good Christian and following all the rules and praying enough and reading the Bible enough. The old way ends in death. You'll never be good enough. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you pray, no matter how much of the Bible you read, you will never be good enough. It'll end in death. In the new way, the Holy Spirit gives life. See, the new way is grace. It's relationship. Now, this doesn't mean the law is bad. The law is good. Can I tell you, it's really good for your marriage if you don't commit adultery. That's not a bad thing. The law is not bad. It's really good for your life if you don't commit murder. You get to enjoy more of life if you don't do that. It's, it's, the law is not bad. The law is good, but the law cannot save you. This is the way you want to look at it. The law is the flight plan. It's where you're going, but it will never get you there. What gets you there? Grace. Grace is the fuel. The gospel is the fuel. Grace is the fuel that gets you there. The law is not bad. It just can't save you. Now, when you put on the new, so that's a couple of keys to putting off the old. When you put on the new, the number one key to remember is the Spirit has already made us new. When you put on the new, all you have to do is remember that you're new. I know it's confusing. I'm going to explain it. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you've said yes to Jesus, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So you're not creating something new. You're simply putting it on. God gives you this jacket called righteousness, and every day you've got to put it on. You put on who you are. You put on your identity. You put it on. Whether you feel like it or not, you put it on. And I know some of you are thinking, well, this is is great. Like, I'm a new person. The old person is dead. I'm this new person. Why do I still struggle? If all of that is true, why do I still want to do bad things? Well, Paul dealt with that. Romans 7, why do I want to do the things that I shouldn't do, and why do I not want to do the things that I should do? So let me get you to the answer. There's a delay. We're all in this process of change, but there's a delay, right? Like, this is what you should be. This is what you are. Why is there a delay? Why can't you get from where you are 
to where you should be. Well, here's the delay. What you believe versus who you are. What you believe versus who you are. That's the delay. If you can get those two things in alignment, you're going to see your life change. What do I mean? Who you are. You're forgiven. You're righteous. You're worthy. You're accepted. What do you believe? I'm a sinner. I'm not good enough. God doesn't love me. See the problem? See, the truth is you're loved. The truth is you're forgiven. The truth is you're righteous. The problem is what you believe about yourself and what is true about yourself, there's a gap. And if you will close the gap, you're going to see yourself move from where you're at to where you should be. But it's not about trying harder. It's about what you believe. And that's why Paul says your mind has to be renewed. It's all about what you believe. It's renewing your mind. Now, there's two ways to renew your mind. Two critical ways all throughout Ephesians, Paul gives us to renew our minds. The first way is in community. It's in church. It's in relationship. You see, if you adopt a child, you adopt an eight-year-old child, and you bring that child into your home, legally, the moment you adopt them, they belong to you. They are legally yours. They are legally part of your family. They have legal standing in your home. But let me ask you a question. Are they going to feel like they're your child? Day one. Legally, they're your child. But are they going to feel like they're your child? No, they're not going to feel it. They're not going to believe it. Their their mind isn't going to accept it the first day. Now, legally, it's true. But their mind, see, this is how Christianity works. The moment you gave your life to Jesus, legally you became righteous. Without sin. All of your sin, past, present, and future, was removed off of your life. The moment you got saved. But you don't feel that way, do you? You still feel like, man, I'm not good enough. I blew it. I made mistakes. God's not happy with me. So what we have to do is get what you believe to get in alignment with legally who you are. How do we do that? Well, if you adopt an eight-year-old child, they're not going to feel at home the first day. But as they live in that family and as the parents love them and accept them and care for them, over time they're going to feel at home. But it's not going to happen with them on their own. It's going to happen in community. Them sitting in their room by themselves every day thinking, well, I belong here, I belong here, I belong here, is not going to work. It's them being cared for. And and this is why being a part of a group in your church is so critical. It's for you to begin to believe your true identity. Because you trying to do Christianity on your own is never going to work for you. Your mind, the Bible is very clear, your mind will deceive yourself. That's why I need people in my life who love me and care about me, who can remind me who I am because I forget. I need people to remind me, you're righteous, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're accepted, you're worthy. Hey, I know you just blew it, but you got to remember you're righteous. So in community, as I'm faithful to my group, God renews my mind through people in my life that help me see my blind spots and that remind me of who I am. Do you have people in your life doing that for you? 
See, it's not enough just to sit in a building once a week and listen to a message. It's about doing life with other Christians and believers. See, we don't do groups because there's another thing we need you to do. We do groups because it's how we grow as Christians. It's how we renew our mind. And then the second thing of how God renews our mind, so the first part is your choice. You choose to partner with God. You choose to participate. You choose to surround yourself with good Christians who can help you. The second part is you allowing God to do the supernatural, and I call it conviction. And this happens through the Holy Spirit. Now, I grew up in a church that taught me the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. Like every time you messed up, the Holy Spirit's this nagging wife who's always on your case telling you everything you do wrong. And as a result, I didn't really want to be close to the Holy Spirit because I knew I was messed up. I didn't need him telling me. Like it was very easy for me to figure out I was a sinner. Do you realize there's nowhere in the Bible that says the Holy Spirit convicts Christians of sin? You won't find one place in the whole Bible that says that. In fact, what the Bible actually teaches in John 16, Jesus said the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. And the only place the Holy Spirit convicts anybody of sin, and it's sin singular, not plural, if you study it in the Greek language, our, our Bible is written in the original Greek, it's one specific sin. It's not the sin of adultery. It's not the sin of murder. It's not the sin of pornography. It's one specific sin. It's the sin of not knowing Jesus. And the only reason the Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin is so that you'll give your life to Jesus Christ. That's it. What he convicts Christians of is righteousness. And this is why Paul says in verse 24, you put on the new man, which was, a created, which was created according to God, in true righteousness. You're putting on righteousness. So the Holy Spirit wants to convince. I am convinced. I'm convicted that two plus two equals four. I'm convicted of that. You can come up to me tonight and you can tell me two plus two equals five. I'm going to tell you you're a liar. Why? Because I'm convicted. I know in the depth of my soul that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and you're not going to change my mind on that. The Holy Spirit wants you to be convicted that you are righteous. Because this is the hardest thing for a Christian to believe. And again, this is why we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. I don't, as I said earlier, I don't need the Holy Spirit to believe I'm a sinner. That's very easy for me. I need the Holy Spirit to convict me I'm righteous because that's the hardest thing for me to believe. Because every time I make a mistake as a Christian, I don't feel righteous. I feel like I blew it. I need the Holy Spirit to come and whisper in my ear, I know you just blew it, but you're still righteous. And why is this so important to the process of change? So we put off the old person. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm going I'm I'm to count myself dead to sin. Even when I make a mistake, I'm going to count myself dead to sin. I put on the new person, this righteousness. I put it on by allowing my mind to be renewed through surrounding myself with the right people and allowing the Holy Spirit to convict me. And here's why. Right believing produces right doing. What you believe determines what you do. Do you want to change? It's not your behavior that's the issue. It's what you believe that's the issue. You don't have a behavior issue. You have a belief issue. If you believe you're righteous, you'll behave righteously. If you believe you're a sinner, you'll behave like a sinner. It's all in what you do. Let me put it like this. Physically, our physical bodies, have you ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? 
It's true. You eat a lot of Krispy Kreme, you look like a donut. I mean, you are what you eat. That's physically. Spiritually, you are what you think. Did you hear me? Proverbs 23, 7 puts it like this. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. Right believing, right thinking produces right doing. Let me close with this illustration. Because this is how my life changed. This is how God set me free from my sex addiction, is I had to believe I was righteous. I had to believe I was forgiven because I lived in shame and guilt and condemnation for years over my sin and my mistakes. And it wasn't until I began to believe that I was forgiven, that God's grace did cover me, that even though I was struggling with this addiction, I was still righteous. When I began to believe I was righteous, I began to be set free in every way. So I have a buddy in our church who's been struggling with pornography, and I've been working with him for the last few years, and it's just been a battle for him. He grew up in a very religious culture, and, and he just can't get this idea that God is mad at him out of his mind. He just thinks because of his sin, he thinks God is mad at him. And I've been working with him. And I finally said, dude, do you realize that your problem is not pornography? Your problem is what you believe. You don't believe the right things, and that's why you're still struggling. He got a new truck recently. He got this big diesel. He's from the south, so he's got this big diesel truck, and he loves to wear his cowboy hat and talk in his southern drawl. And I asked him, I said, when you went to the gas station after you got this truck, you had the truck for a couple weeks, I said, what kind of gas did you put in the truck? He said, I put diesel. I said, why did you put diesel in it? Because it's a diesel. I said, well, how do you know it's a diesel? He said, well, the guy that sold it to me told me it was diesel, and there's a book in the glove box that says it's a diesel. I said, wait a second. You didn't take apart the engine to make sure it was diesel? You just trusted what somebody said by faith? You just accept what some book says by faith, and you just put diesel in it? He said, yeah. I said, well, let me ask this. Your other car was unleaded, so for the last 10 years, every time you go to the gas station, you're, you're using unleaded gasoline. The first time you went to the gas station in this new truck, did you have to, like, use willpower? Did you break out in a cold sweat? Did you have to fight the urge of using unleaded because you've used unleaded for so long? Like, did you have to control the urge? Like, I can't do unleaded. He said, no, I just put diesel in it. I said, why? Because it's diesel. I said, do you see what the problem is? You don't believe you're a diesel, so you keep putting unleaded gasoline into the tank. You see, you believe it's diesel, and so you put diesel in it. What you believe determines what you do. You've been using unleaded gasoline for 10 years, but all of a sudden you transition overnight to diesel because you believe it's diesel. If you change what you believe, you change what you do. And this is why we need people in our life helping us see ourselves the way God sees us, and we need to allow the Holy Spirit into our life to convince us that we are righteous when we don't feel righteous. So we're going to end like this. I want you to commit this fall to being in a group, being in a team of people, getting yourself surrounded with people that will speak truth into you, people that will remind you, no, you're forgiven. I know you blew it yesterday, but you're forgiven. God loves you. Do you realize as a Christian, we don't confess our sins for forgiveness. We confess our sins because of forgiveness. Because I'm already forgiven. I don't, I, don't, I don't confess my sins so that God will forgive me. I'm already forgiven. 
I'm already righteous. I don't, God, please forgive me. Please, I'll never do it again. God, please forgive me. If you pray like that, you're going to feel a million miles away from God. We confess because of forgiveness. When I sin, when I make a mistake, I come to God and I say, God, I'm sorry. I blew it, but I thank you that even though I made a mistake today, I'm still forgiven. Even though I made a mistake, I'm still righteous. I'm declaring truth over my situation, and it pulls me close to God. And it breaks the power of sin in my life because I'm declaring truth and believing truth instead of a lie. So the first step is surround yourself with the right people. Second thing is I want to close in prayer, and I want you to stand with me for a moment. And as we close tonight, I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict every single person here of their righteousness.